0: this morning because he is in some ways a guest preacher. Um, He's not uh, new to us at all. He is, in fact, very well known to us. But but Gage will be um, preaching this morning. And for the last year or so, we've seen Gage lead worship. Uh, He's normally been standing over here, uh, done an excellent job. We've seen his growth uh, in that he's brought us into the Lord's presence uh, for leading in song and, and I've told Ryan I said one of the things it's helpful for us to have Gage lead us in worship helpful to have other people rather than uh, just you and it's good for us to have other people rather than just me preach at at Rock Valley Bible Church as well Gage is going off to University of Alabama will be a freshman this fall and um, you know I think the world of Gage um, In fact. I just want to read a letter of recommendation that I wrote for Gage just to give you an idea of what kind of man he is. This is how most of you know him, but uh, some of you visiting here today, just this is Gage. It says a letter of recommendation. I forget the way this was What's for. April 15th? Some, some scholarship. <laughs> Who knows? But it says, I'm the pastor of the church to whom it may concern where Gage has grown up. I Have known the Weeby family for close to 15 years. The entire family has been a great encouragement to me. Darren, Gage's father, has served with me on the leadership team of the church. Maggie, Gage's mother, has been faithful to love and serve others in the church, especially those going through difficult times. Gage's character is consistent with his parents' example. He's a faithful and dependable young man who demonstrates his care for others. He is hardworking, responsible. When tasks are given to Gage, he completes them. I've seen him choosing the righteous way, even when it's not convenient or easy. Gage's giftedness is rare. He's a tremendous athlete. He's played football, basketball, soccer, and track. He especially starred in soccer and track. He's played a crucial role in all the teams he's played. Further, Gage is an excellent student. I don't have the details, but I'm sure he's near at the top of his class. You were, Gage, yes, somewhere. Uh. (laughs) you don't know he was further he has taken many junior college classes for dual credit in his days in high school he's the epitome of everything you want in a student athlete finally Gage is a leader people look up to him and follow him at school on his teams and with the youth at church he's even led our church over 100 people in worship on a number of occasions providing spiritual direction to the entire congregation people have responded very well his spiritual maturity and music ability is evident to all said I would highly recommend Gage Uh, He would always be welcome on my team. And uh, so it's a privilege for me just having pastored Gage since, I'm not sure I've known you since you've been like three, maybe two. And it's just fun to to see. And I just know the Lord will use him as he goes off to college with opportunities of leading worship. It's just equipped him. And I've told Ryan this. I've told you this, Gage, as well. Just your opportunity here to lead us in worship will give you more of a comfort, whatever college group you're involved with down in Alabama. And in the same way, just a gauge I over the last six months or so have been meeting weekly, just talking about Bible study and Bible interpretation, how to study a text, and um, it just seemed appropriate for him, as Psalm 103 was a, a text that really gripped him in, in the past, still does, about how to take that and how to turn that into a message. And just uh, as he speaks today, it's sort of like a, an exam, final exam of our time together, not really... Um, but it's an opportunity really just to further equip Gage as we send him out. I'm gonna miss him and I know Maggie, you're gonna miss him more than, than I will and, and Darren um, will uh, as well, but we are, we are thankful uh, to Gage. And so come and open the word to us. I know you're gonna be encouraged.
1: Well, thank you all. Uh, it's an honor, a privilege, and a blessing to stand before you this morning and uh, present to you God's Word. Uh, as Steve mentioned earlier, I'm often on a very different part of the stage, uh, either behind the drums or up here leading worship. And so as I'm sure you can probably tell, uh, worship and song is something that's very dear to my heart. And so I want to begin this message by telling you all a musical story, uh, specifically from my childhood. When I was eight years old, I learned a song. But this was not any other song that I had learned, whether it be here in church or on the radio. No, this was a song learned over the course of many nights spent at home with my family doing an activity we call family worship. Now, if you've been part of this church for a while, you're probably pretty familiar with the idea of family worship. Uh, But if you don't know what it is, it's essentially a time set aside each day, or in our case, night, where... uh, We gather together for, one, the reading of God's word, and two, for prayer. Many other families, uh, we do this as well during Advent season, uh, throw in some singing of songs and uh, hymns. But our family particularly, uh, something that we do before we begin reading, uh, is we go over something called fighter verses. And now, Fighter Verses, uh, it's an organization, and they come out with a new set of verses or passages uh, for you to learn each and every week. And so sometimes they give us one long passage of scripture, and all of these passages that Fighter Verses put out are put to song in one way or another. And this is exactly the type of song that I learned. The constant repetition of both reciting and singing this song has ingrained the words of God into my brain from a very young age uh, as an eight-year-old boy, and more recently those words have found their way to my heart uh, as I've studied this passage in order to bring it before you this morning. Now, as you can see up on the slides here, uh, my sermon is going to be on Psalm 103, so if you haven't already, I encourage you to open your Bibles, or as we say here, turn them on. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, they're going to be underneath the chairs. It's on page 502. Uh, Psalm 103 is a Psalm of David. Uh, And it says this Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. You ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Would you please join me in prayer this morning? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is perfect and inerrant uh, and profitable for us to learn from. I pray that you would use me um, as an instrument to speak to the hearts of people, that you would cut hearts open, God, that these words would find their way deep into their heart and root themselves that they might grow and that these people might bear fruit. I pray that the words that I speak would not be my own, but they, they would be yours alone, O oh God. And that you would just give me strength and confidence as I present your message to your people this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, before we uh, dive into the text here, I want to preface by saying that the most memorable part of Psalm 103 has always been the first line. And it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The command to bless the Lord is repeated six times throughout the chapter, twice at the very beginning, and four times at the end. This, of course, makes it an appropriate title, from my message this morning, as you've already seen. Bless the loving Lord. Why loving? Well, I could have titled it, Bless the Gracious God, since verse 8 specifically tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious. But I could have also titled it, Bless the Glorious God, referring to verse 19 when David speaks of the Lord's kingdom and how God is exalted in the heavens, as we read earlier. However, I believe that loving is the word that best suits, uh, specifically verses 3 through 19, the best. And it's for a few reasons. Uh, One, the term steadfast love appears four times throughout those verses, and the surrounding text elaborates on how God's steadfast love is displayed to us. Second, uh, if you'll notice something strange, uh, the word God is not actually used once throughout Psalm 103. In fact, actually... David uses the term the Lord, and if you know your Bible translation history, you know that the Lord uh, was the Hebrew personal name for God. Uh, We don't have a perfect English translation for it, but we traditionally say Yahweh or Jehovah. This means that David was describing the person of God, the one who has a deep and intimate relationship with us, so naturally David must be speaking of God's love. So, bless the loving Lord is our title. But why? Why are we commanded to bless the Lord? Well, our answer comes right here in verses 1 through 5. They say this Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. My first point says this, bless the Lord for his benefits. And this comes directly from verse two, forget not all his benefits. And we see what those benefits are throughout the remaining three verses of the text. He forgives all our iniquity, he heals all our diseases, He redeems our lives from the pit of despair, raises us up and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, then satisfying us with good so that our youth is renewed like the great eagles that we might further his kingdom. We are called to bless the Lord from bringing us from the darkest night to the brightest glory. He takes our brokenness and strengthens us to do his work. And as a result of that, how can we not bless a God, bless a Lord who has loved us so? But let's dig a little bit deeper into these verses and look at the first part of my point, the command I mentioned earlier, bless the Lord. Now, I just finished taking a literature and composition class, And dissecting poems was a very common task that we did. And now, as I'm sure you all know, the psalms are poetry. So I'm going to be applying a lot of the same concepts that I learned in that class to Psalm 103. In fact, I'm going to be adding so much poetic analysis that I could have added that as a subtitle to my message. I could have called my message also, Bless the Loving Lord, a Poetic Analysis, Uh, But I figured on the website it would probably seem like a pretty boring sermon to listen to. But when writing essays about the poems in this class, we asked two questions to find the main meaning behind a poem, or the message. And these are called what and how questions. We're going to look at the how question first. And the question is this, how do we bless the Lord? Well, I think that our answer comes along in verse 1. Look at this, All that is within me, bless his holy name. How do we bless the Lord? With everything in us. We are called to glorify God with our time, our talents, our resources, even our soul. And yet not one of those things was not given to us by God. Right? We've got that double negative. It's a positive. So how much more should we seek to glorify that God in return? And as, is, as this isn't good enough, uh, we somehow still get benefits from all of this. That brings me to the second question, the what question. And it's, what do the benefits look like? We've already looked at what the benefits are. But what do the benefits look like for us in our life on earth? Is it possible that we might not see the effects of these blessings right away? Take, for example... Um, Verse 3, believers who have been healed of a disease. Um, There are a lot of believers who have died of diseases. Does that mean that the Lord heals all our diseases? On earth? No, not necessarily. But if we look in context, it can be connected to the first half of that verse when David says that it's the ultimate disease of sin that the Lord cleanses us, that he heals us from. Only Jesus and the salvation that he brings by grace through faith can help cure or heal that disease. A similar example can be found in verse 5. Your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, there's a lot of us who, the older we get, we're not going to find renewed strength. We're not going to be as physically abled as we once were. But in context, David is saying that God renews our strength to run the spiritual race set before us. See, Jesus has paid the penalty, bearing the weight of all of our sin, so that we can run that race, right? The Olympics are going on right now. We're running that race, but we can run it free of sin. We can run it free of that weighty burden, all because of Jesus and his death, resurrection, Now, after these spiritual examples, we do begin to see the actual physical examples of God's grace, which leads directly into my second point, statements of grace, which comes from verses 6 through 10. David says this, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So right away we see both a benefit— like we looked at in the last point, and a statement directly claiming that God is gracious, making verse 6 a perfect transition. Now, as we know, poetry is often rather abstract, but it's really nice that we have a pretty clear transition point here. The first statement of grace, uh, which comes from that verse, says this, God is just and righteous. And this is no empty statement either. In fact, we know that this is true because it is proved In the very next verse. Let's look at this. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, this is interesting because uh, we may find ourselves asking the question, well, what are God's ways? Well, I'm going to flip back to Exodus 34 right here, where Moses is actively interceding with God on behalf of the Israelites. This happens right after Exodus 32, where the Israelites uh, were creating the golden calf. We all know that story very well, I'm assuming. Um, But the Israelites were sinning against God. And so uh, Moses is making the new set of tablets for the Ten Commandments and and talking to God and saying, God, please, please redeem your people. Don't see the sin. I will. I am coming before you that they might uh, still have your blessing. And so the Lord, when speaking to Moses, he says this in Exodus 34, uh, specifically verses 6b and 7a. They say this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, as I'm sure you can see, those verses sound an awful lot like Psalm 103, don't they? (laughs) And so that tells us two things. One, God is, in fact, just and righteous. He redeemed his chosen people, the Israelites, from captivity, and he didn't see their sin. Instead, he forgave their iniquities, and he renewed the covenant and the commandments. The second thing we see are, come in the remaining verses from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. The verses in Exodus 34 are, telling, are God telling Moses what his ways are. And of course, they match up perfectly. So in context, these verses are saying that God saw the sin of the Israelites... But he was merciful and gracious. And so how much more is God gracious to us? How much more deserving of sin are we than the Israelites? And God still sees our sin as nothing. This is a perfect parallel to God sending his only son to die on a cross for our sin, despite the fact that we deserved nothing but eternity in hell. But this concept of God's grace doesn't stop there. In fact, David writes another six verses on the idea. But it's in a slightly different format. Now, in the literature class that I mentioned earlier, when we analyze poems, we look specifically for uh, literary devices that enhance the message or the meaning of the poem. You've probably heard of a lot of them, like alliteration. You'll notice that in my title, Bless the Loving Lord. It's the repetition of the letter L at the beginning of the word. You've also probably heard of rhyming. I don't think I need to explain that one. Uh, but there are two specific ones that I want to focus on. Well, really one, but it's very similar to another one. Now, how many of you guys have heard of a simile before? Probably all of us. And again, how many of you have heard of a metaphor? Again, probably all of you. Now, here's the hard question that people always get tripped up on. What's the difference between a simile and and a metaphor. Well, a metaphor is simply a comparison. A simile is a comparison specifically using the words like or as. And David employs the use of these similes to really drive home this idea of God's grace. Thus, I have appropriately called my next point, Similes of Grace, which comes from verses 11 through 16. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Now as you can see from all of these verses, uh, there are a lot of similes. (laughs) There's four of them specifically. We see four as high, as far, as a father, as for man. And all of these are aligned with a statement of grace or God's ways. Our first simile in verses 8 and 11 speak of the Lord's love, which of course complement our title. David begins with stating how great God's steadfast love is in verse 8, but he elaborates on that in verse 11. He creates an even stronger picture. I'll read it again. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Now, this is equivalent to saying, if you went out on the clearest night, so I'm sure uh, there's a a lot of you guys may not know this, but if you were out at sea, Uh, that's when you see the best stars. There's not any other lights in sight. So if you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean somewhere, the stars are always going to be the most beautiful. So if you were on a boat in the middle of the ocean at night, the clearest night you could possibly imagine, the vastness of God's steadfast love would exceed even the farthest star that we cannot see. How incredible is that? On a night like this, where the galaxy seems the biggest it's ever been, and God's steadfast love is somehow greater than that. The next simile in verse 12 is equally as mind-boggling, and it comes in verse 12. God does not only spare judgment for our iniquities, like it says in verse 10, But he removes our sins so far away from us that the distance is as far as the east is from the west. A a picture of this might be a number line. For you mathematicians out there, you've got a number line. You've got an arrow going to negative infinity. You've got an arrow going to positive infinity. And you can't put a point in either of those directions, because it goes on forever. That's how far away our sin is removed from us. And that seems impossible for us, and it is. But it's a small matter for God. The final connection is found between verses 9 and verses 13 through 16. God sees our sin. He sees that we are but a fleeting breath worth nothing more than dust. Yet he shows compassion by holding back his anger and his wrath. See, Jesus hadn't even been sent by God yet. But David still saw just how compassionate God was towards both himself and the Israelites. In fact, he showed so much compassion that David compares God's compassion to that of a godly father, which is completely ironic, considering that David had no idea that Jesus was coming, and that God was the actual, literal father of Jesus. Now, there were prophecies, but David hadn't seen that in his life. He, didn't, he had not seen the story of Jesus. And comparing God to a father is all the more appropriate, since God is our father, in heaven, seated on high. And this is a perfect segue into my next point, which comes through verses 17 through 19. It begins with even more loving kindness, as if we hadn't seen enough in verse 17, but it ends with Christ glorified in verse 19. Let me read that for you. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I mean, that's just crazy. That's just the first half of verse 17, and we're already seeing even more steadfast love. Let me read that again. Verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. And now verses 18 and 19. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. My fourth point, uh, as I mentioned, comes from verses 17 through 19. It says this, God's glory is forever. Now this is kind of where we get a break in David's traditional poetry. And this break is a big fancy name we call the Volta. Now, when I hear Volta, I think of a lightning bolt. I think of a shock going straight through the middle of that passage, dividing up two thoughts, because that's what, the, that's what the Volta symbolizes. It marks a change in perspective or thinking. And that's exactly what happens here between verses 18 and 19. We shift from a focus of God's love and faithfulness in verse 17, and it totally transitions to the glory of God in verse 19. But it still keeps that main theme of blessing the Lord. This begins in verse 18 with a subtle nod back to the ways of Moses, stating that those who keep the renewed covenant and commandments from Exodus 34 are forever loved by God, right? Everlasting to everlasting. And there is nothing that can separate God's love from His children. And now we get to that volta. David completely changes his thought in verse 19, saying that the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. See, David knew how to bask in the glory of God. He knew how to receive forgiveness and mercy. He understood that all of it, came from God's loving heart. He understood, understood that God was ruling and reigning on high and would always be glorified. And likewise, we should naturally have the same attitude towards God, that attitude of thankfulness and of gratitude for God for sending His Son, Jesus, and sacrificing Him so that we might be saved if we simply believe and trust in Him. And now this verse, 19, uh, politically, it's foreshadowing for Psalm 104. It sets the stage for when David speaks in depth about the glory of God. So we're not going to go into Psalm 104 uh, because for this passage, David was simply stating that he understood he was subject to the Most High King. And he could do absolutely nothing but bless the Lord for his saving power and authority, and that's exactly what Davis comman- David commands us to do as well. My fifth and final point says, "Bless the Lord, all things created," and it comes from the last three verses, verses twenty through twenty-two. They say this: "Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying." the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places, of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is really as straightforward as any command gets, right? David bluntly says that everything in all of the earth, it doesn't matter if you're here on earth, if you're below the earth or above the earth, you are called to bless the Lord. David uses the common technique of repetition. He drives home the main point of his poem by placing that main point at both the beginning and the end, or the top and the bottom. The message could not be clearer. We are called to bless the the Lord. For we were wretched sinners. We were worth nothing but dust. Yet God made known his ways. He ransomed us from the clutches of hell by removing all sin from us and directing his anger at his one and only son, Jesus. And all of this so that we can enjoy the glory of God in its fullness. And how can we not Bless a God who has loved us so. And guys, that right there is the gospel. It was sprinkled throughout the poem, like like the whole thing, but it, it was in a way that it just took a little bit of time and poetic analysis to point out. In our first point, Jesus redeemed our lives from the pit and crowned us, although we deserved nothing but death. In our second point, Jesus was righteous, but he kept his anger from us and did not hold us accountable for our sins. Rather, in our third point, Jesus showed compassion despite our frail frame and cast out our sin entirely by his death so that in our fourth point, Jesus could be glorified at the Father's right hand because of the great love with which he cleansed us. And of course, our fifth point, We are called to bless that that loving Lord, Jesus, for his atoning blood. For he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, yet was crucified, although he deserved nothing. He paid the death penalty for all of our sins by dying on that cross, rising again and being lifted up so that we might be glorified with him at the Father's right hand, because of the great love. And how can we not bless such a gracious God, a glorious God, or a loving Lord? As we close today, I want to challenge all of you. We are called to bless the Lord. But are we doing that? Are we doing that individually? Are we doing that in our families? Are we being diligent in setting aside specific time so that we might bless the Lord? Because I want you to think back to what impacted you as a child. For me, it was family worship and the constant repetition of Psalm 103. But for you, it might have been a different kind of song, a book, a movie, a person. Think of the effect that that thing has had on your life from when you were eight years old. And how can you change that to make Scripture your lasting memories? How can you teach your kids and your grandkids the ways of God? How can you bless the Lord and bask in the glory of God? And that's with with worship. And so why not introduce family worship? So that they might remember their favorite Bible song or psalm or verse from when they were eight. Before and after the service, we've got a slideshow that uh, that goes up here. And always, every Sunday, um, we have fighter verses. The fighter verse of the week is on that slideshow. And we talk about it in prayer meeting at nine o'clock. It's been the prayer of the elders for a long time that prayer meeting be just as full as the Sunday service. And we found that often that's not the case. So how can we bless the Lord? Maybe by learning those fighter verses, as I encourage you all to do. I encourage you to introduce that in your homes. And that's my challenge to you, that you might be so grateful and thankful to the Lord for his loving kindness and grace and mercy towards us that we can do absolutely nothing but simply bless him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity to come before your people and bring the word. I thank you um, for how you revealed yourself to me. And I pray that you would reveal yourself to all the people who hear this message God, I pray that this message did cut hearts deep. I pray that it did convict. And I just pray that we would go from here blessing you for all that you've done in our lives. God, we love you and we thank you and praise you for your saving work on the cross that we might be glorified. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper coming up here, I pray that we would, we would meditate on your ways. That we would see the fault of our sins and know that we need a Savior. And if we are saved, we are called to partake in communion. And so that is what we are going to do here. I pray that we would go forth from this place um, encouraged, and that we might enjoy your grace and extend your glory to all the ends of the earth and bless the loving Lord. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.